Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey towards product mastery so you can better develop products customers love. Now, we have had a lot of valuable guests on this podcast, and one of my favorites is Ken Gray. We talked a few years ago. We were just trying to figure out how long ago that was. It was episode 046. That's almost 400 episodes ago when he was the global director of innovation for Caterpillar. Since leaving CAT, he has worked on 3D printing, advanced manufacturing, robotics, and more. He has also been a longtime supporter of the University of Iowa Institute for Vision Research, which is creating cures and solutions everyone can afford for vision diseases. And Kitten is going to be sharing his lessons learned from those years of product innovation wisdom that he has. First, this episode is made possible by the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, the RPM Experience, which is my system to help product VPs and leaders get their product managers and everyone else contributing product to increase performance by building necessary skills and working in alignment to reach your North Star objectives. It works best for new teams or established teams that are facing a big challenge. It's really unlike any other training that you'll find out there. It is an experience where we work together. Go to productmasterynow.com RPM to see how it can help you. Also, we do create a detailed written summary of this discussion and a one-page action guide to help you put into action the key concepts that Ken will be sharing with us. To find those resources, please go to productmasterynow.com 443. Ken, thanks so much for being with us once again. Gosh, thanks for having me. I, again, I cannot believe it's been, we probably shouldn't tell people how long ago <laughs> that was. It'll give away well, some things know, so about age and some certain things that we want to keep secret. 400 episodes later, we do one a week, I guess you can figure it out. So Yeah, it's um, been a while. More than a minute, as they say. When we did talk, it was one of my favorite episodes, and in part because I share it so often with people, and I suspect you may not remember even you know what came up there, but... The part of the episode we talked about was the three horizon model Mm. you had characterized as what do we do now that we focus on this related to our core? What's the adjacent that makes sense for us to do product innovation wise? And then what's really transformative, which happens to spell cat, which I just thought was ironic. As you said during the interview, that was never intended. It just worked out that way. Yeah, I'm not that that clever. I'm not that clever. (laughs) But, and I still, one of the things I need to do, I told you before we started, I don't like to listen to myself and I can't remember ever listening to that episode, but I need to go back and see how my thinking has changed. But one of the things that has definitely not changed is that innovation is partially portfolio management around that core adjacent and transformational spaces. And if a business is performing, underperforming, it's probably because its level of innovation in the adjacent and transformational spaces is lacking. That's a very good point. It's also a key distinction between product managers and those that are moving in or already are in product leadership roles. Because product managers, when I talk to them, they're not often involved in portfolio management decisions. It's really useful for them to be aware of how that works. So when they're suggesting projects to do that, they understand how they fit in, right? And it increases their likelihood of getting a project accepted if they understand that. But product leaders really need to be concerned about the bigger picture and what is that mix of products we're working on and when are things getting introduced to the market and how are we competing in the market? And it's an important area. Yeah, it's, it's around timing is everything, right? It's about knowing when the idea is right. When does it fit my, when does it fit the, the global strategy? And I don't mean worldwide strategy, the broader company vision and strategy. When does the idea fit? Yep. Let's start just in the beginning. I think people are drawn to product work, product innovation for different reasons. How about you? What attracted you to that? I was a kid, literally. 
tearing apart my dad's lawnmower to work on my to take parts for my go-kart and things like that. But my my late mom tells a story about me coming home from the second grade. And people that know me have certainly heard this story, but I came home from the second grade and told her that that I was going to be an engineer and design construction equipment. And you know that there's a there must be a bunch of revisionist history in there. I'm not sure I knew what an engineer was until I got to work after university, so I can't imagine I said design, but she insists, insisted that's what I, that's what I said. So from a very early age, probably because the interstate highway system in the, when the mid sixties was going through my hometown, I got a chance to sit on a hill and sit on a rock and watch. I was probably sitting on my Schwinn gold metal flake banana seat bicycle watching. Remember the banana seats? Yeah, tractors, tractor scrapers, 638. Bees probably at that point running, moving dirt in front of, you know, what would have been probably D8K push loading, stuff like that. So that's what got me excited in the first place. I was a kid in a sandbox that I never left and still have not left. So that's where it started. And I loved it. I wouldn't change a thing about it. I really wouldn't. Caterpillar was a good place then for that. I had visited the Caterpillar, their visitor center in Peoria, Illinois. I I don't know if it's still there. I know they moved headquarters. But at that time, it was a very impressive facility. And the way that starts, just for listeners to know, you start in a theater. The hosts tell you a little bit about Caterpillar and they play a video for you. But the theater is the bed. What do you call this? The big bucket of a mining dump truck. It's the dump bed. Right. It gives you this perspective of how large these vehicles actually are how many people fit inside one of those things it's still there but it's part of the peoria riverfront museum complex and is a very cool it's a very cool place to to visit Ah, put it on your list go check out a go check out a minor league ball game at the at dozer park beautiful ballpark and go to the riverfront museum check out the check out the headquarters the caterpillar museum there really cool thing to do for us gearheads I had fun. It was great. Brought my kids. There's lots of the good big equipment to see. Okay, I'd like to get some of your lessons learned over the years. And we could go anywhere we want with this, right? But think about the things that stood out to you that you've learned that maybe were game, changer, game changers and how you approach product innovation. I thought of a few categories we might explore, and maybe there's some other things that come up. But first category I thought was discovering what customers want and need. How do we go about actually creating value for someone? I always think of innovation in terms of people, culture, vision, and execution. I think understanding what customer customers' needs is about having the right people on your team, knowing the right people, and building deep relationships with customers that... You need to have people that know customers, that are willing to know customers, that spend a tremendous amount of time with them to, to learn about what it is they need. Customers at least in the industrial spaces where I've worked, unlike my personal life, don't generally like to be on the bleeding edge of technology. They don't want technology for technology's sake or innovation for innovation's sake. They want, they, they have specific needs to improve their business, whether that's reliability or performance or owning and operating cost, whatever that may, whatever those top critical customer requirements are, those relationships from which you learn to understand those things, I think is those are more important than than anything else. In fact, I think the most important product marketing work a company can do is understanding what 
customers need to improve their business performance and translating those needs into what I call functional specifications, which define what a product needs to do for that to serve that customer's needs. So just a definition, and a lot of companies think about these differently, but I think of functional requirements as the definition of what the product is, and technical requirements then are the definitions of how you engineer the product to deliver those functional requirements. Some people call those PR. ERD, ERD, there's a PRD, which is a product requirements document, an ERD, which is an engineering requirements document. It just depends on the language of your company. But I think the most important, again, the most important product marketing work you can do is inbound to the manufacturer, inbound to the product group. It's understanding what customers need and translating that into a functional requirements or a PRD, a product requirements document. Excellent. Tips or things that you've found to help get that done? On one hand, I think this is pretty straightforward that you can just literally go talk to customers, observe what they're doing, and try to understand their business, right, and their problems. But there's lots of tools out there. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I'm tool agnostic. There are a lot of tools that will help you. But I would say my number one lesson is, my number one learning, and then there's a number two that's attached to it. My number one learning is never write a product requirement or functional requirement document that isn't prioritized. Never give engineering what I've called a flat list. That is an an unprioritized list. Here are all the things you need to get done. Give them a prioritized, give them a prioritized list, at least a high, medium, low, high, medium, nice to have kind of listing. Otherwise, you're going to get the cool stuff first. (laughs) We're all, we're human, right? We're going to do the things that we know how to get done or the things that are fun to do, which aren't necessarily what aligns with what customers need. So make sure that I think the most important thing is make sure that is a prioritized list that becomes an actionable list in the technical requirements document. Is that, does that answer your question? I think for me, that's the key. That is the key. And then close to that, and I've talked about many times, somehow you need to, we all have biases that we don't know we have. There are things that customers need and they don't tell you that they need. So you also, you need more than engineering people understanding businesses or business people understanding businesses. You need, it's almost a sociologist content where you are understanding why customers behave the way they do beyond their spoken word. And here's, a, here's my favorite example I've overused. I apologize if you've heard it before, Chad, but customers in the industrial space, a buyer would never let his boss hear he or she say that one of the things that drives their decisions is style. It's an industrial machine. It just does stuff. Right. <laughs> it's a machine. It's a machine tool. It doesn't matter. They will tell you that it absolutely doesn't matter. But when you look at buying behaviors, it absolutely matters. (laughs) So I had a Chinese customer tell me years ago that, Ken, if you tell me that it's a five-star hotel, but it doesn't look like a five-star hotel, I'm never going to know because I'm never going to go in. Hmm. So it has to... Whatever it appeals to the... Whatever appeals to them psychologically is more deeper than or more broadly than functionally, needs to be satisfied as well. And those are harder things to uncover. Those buying decisions are harder to uncover, I think, than the pure technical ones. 
Now you're going to ask me how to do that. You got to get to know them really well. It just goes back to the, I wish it was, it's not more complicated. Just, you just have to go, I'd love to complicate it. I think it's pretty straightforward. Get to know these people. Mm-hmm. Right. What matters to them? What matters to them? Yeah. I also think, you, you, you know, just go real ahead. quick, can I, you said something earlier, what I wanted to highlight was our job in developing value for them is to understand what helps to improve their business. That's right. And sometimes I think we do kind of get caught up, especially as engineers, like we're wired in the fascination of the solution and how cool our solution actually is. And our customers often don't actually care about how cool our solution is. No. How good of a job does it do helping them in some aspect? Yeah. If I'm a small, medium business, I'm not really concerned about how the accounting system works. I'm not in the business of accounting systems. I just need that thing to run my business. And also understanding there's some aspect past functional needs, like, man, that digger looks a whole lot cooler than that digger. I want my guys in that one. That's right. Because they're going to get that experience better. And the operators like it, right? And if it's like the environment you're working in, does it have Mm -hmm. to be nicer? No, but it matters. Maslow talked about this concept. Maslow's hammer. I, we think I mean, th- this famous psychologist, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is where most people run into Maslow the first time. But Maslow's hammer is a great concept. It's a very interesting comment concept. And it, basically, he said that if all you have is a hammer, every problem is going to look like a nail. And again, this is this unconscious bias. We have a technology. It is really cool. It's better than technologies that are out there. So people are going to come, you know, <laughs> No, right. they're not necessarily going to come. It, I wish they would. It's this, it'd be so easy. I've got a better product. Here they come. Why doesn't it happen that way? Well, it doesn't happen that way because you're not spending the time to understand what drives success in their business and you're not creating an optimal product that helps them and they don't believe you. They may not believe you. So I, I'm an engineer too. I'm a, I'm a, that's my, my guys will probably tell you he's not, he hasn't been an engineer for a long time. It's still how you think. I'm a mark, I'm a marketing person too. And facts and data, you know, when I first came out of engineering school, I thought that's just all seat of the pants. It's not. It's facts and data driven too. And learning what customers need and then explaining to them what you've got, that's the second most important product marketing work. And it isn't about features and benefits. It's about how does this product improve your business? Why do you want this? And if you can't explain that to your customer on one eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, that is, I'm going to say 12 point font, maybe 14, you've lost. So anyway, sorry, I'm preaching. I'm preaching already, Chad. There, see what you got. You got me into the, you got me into the Ken preacher mode. This is what we want, right? The, the words of wisdom, the, the guidance that we need to. So again, I, so let's go. Let's go. So I go to people, culture, vision, execution. Just very briefly, we're talking about lessons learned here. I would rather have an empty seat. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have an empty seat on my team than the wrong person in it. That's probably rule number one. Okay. And right now, there's such competition for talent that your tendency is to settle. If you're hiring, if you're hiring manager for product development team, your tendency is to settle because there's such competition. Don't do it. I'd rather have it empty. I just cannot stress how important that is, hiring the right people. Then the second, I think, then I think is we're also thinking about people 
and this borders into culture as well, nurture the dissenting voice. You need to hire people as a leader that will tell you that you're full of it. I specifically had people on my team, if anybody's listening and knows Xavier Dupuis, just say hello to Xavier for me in Belgium. I always kept people on my team who would take me aside or not, and we'd do it publicly and say, you got this wrong, Ken, this is, and this is why. And you have got to keep those people on your team. And I always had one. In fact, one of them, one of them, one of my favorites was an, my, was an administrative assistant. Hello, Holly. And she took me aside one day, came into my office one day, and she said, can I close the door? We need to have a conversation. Sure. And she said, you need to know people are afraid of you. Mm. What? Really? People are afraid of you. You you are really forceful, and you need to know that you have a really forceful personality, and sometimes you need to turn it down. So you need people around you that will that are not afraid to tell you style-wise that you need to make a change, or in terms of just how you do things. I always had I had a I had used to do these great town hall meetings with hundred people in the room or more people in the room. Okay, I'm going to admit it. I'm going to admit this now that I'm way past that part of my career. I had plants in the audience who would ask the hard question. Ask, mm. This is one that people want to ask, and they're going to be afraid to ask it. I need you to ask this question. And if it was quiet, I'd call on them. And they know, <laughs> they know who they are. <laughs> but <laughs> these are people that I could, that, because they were great performers anyway. And they always had a skill set. One of the things that they brought to us from a culture point of view and from a people, you're curating your team. They're people that weren't afraid to tell me exactly what I needed to hear, whether I wanted to hear it or not. Super important. Super important. We'll be back with our guest in a moment. As you are a listener to this podcast, I want you to know how you can get even greater value from it, which is by becoming a member of the Product Mastery Now community. After being closed to new members for the last six months, it's now open. The community lets you meet the weekly guests yourself and ask your questions. If you miss these live sessions, you can view the video recording months before the audio-only version is available on podcast players, like what you're listening to now. You can also use Super Search to search the content of all past episodes, both in audio and video when available. The community is also the place to interact with other product professionals and get tips and advice. And that's just part of what the community offers. In my opinion, working in product is the best job you can have. Now, of course, I'm biased, but that's been true for me and true for many others I talk to. But still, many of us have few opportunities to network and learn from other product professionals. Let's change that. Since you already find this podcast valuable, you need to be in the community also, and you can be for as little as $10 a month. You'll be helping yourself and also helping this podcast. Please join now by going to productmasterynow.com slash community. Thanks for checking it out. Uh, on the culture aspect, because I wanted to ask you about working with team and like, obviously, Holly was either just the sort of person who was courageous and knew what needed to be done, or she already did see aspects of you that she felt like, I, I can approach, approach Ken and tell him he has a blind spot here. And I think it's both of those things. I think it's actually both of those things. Mm -hmm. She was pretty brave, wouldn't think of herself as that way. But because she was my assistant, we worked closely. 
And so she knew things that you know, she just got to know me in a way that that when you're running a huge organization, it's hard for others to know and you needed to. So what we did is found ways to expose more people to that more gentle side that's deep in the recesses <laughs> in somewhere. But that was a part of the town hall kind of ideas where we spent lots of time just sitting. I would have an auditorium full of people and I would sit on the edge of the stage and just have people fire questions, which is why before the start, I said part of the one of the most interesting aspects of what we're going to do today is field questions at the end. I always learned more. I always learned more about what was going on, both with my customers and my product and my team culture in those settings than, in, than just about any place else. And important to do. As we're talking about that, the town halls, how did you structure that? Sounds like you, you clearly had Q&A time at the end. You had perhaps questions you thought of in advance that you had prepared some people to make sure they got asked that we need to talk about. But give us a little more insights on how you prepared for a town hall. We always wanted the town halls to talk about the business, how we were performing as a business. I wanted everyone to understand a P&L. So we'd show the P&L. Let's take them through the numbers. I wanted to, I think there's nothing more important than, a, than the quality of your product, especially if you make hardware. So I always wanted people to understand how the quality, how the product was performing in the field from a quality point of view. What are the, what is the, what's the reliability numbers? Do we have, we found any safety issues? Are we, do we have any, have we had production stoppages? Those sorts of things. Then I wanted to talk about people and what kind of feedback were we getting about the, how people were enjoying the business or not enjoying the business and that, that sort of thing. But we would always start these meetings with safety. Every everything we did, like the, you everybody ought to have an expectation, and it's everyone that you work with, whether it's on your team or whether it's a customer or a supplier or somebody visiting your facility or whatever it is, they have an expectation of getting there safely, being there safely, and getting home safely. And that's the most important thing was that we always started every town hall, every meeting with a discussion about safety. Then we got into the business. Then we got into the product quality. And then, and, and then we got into how customers were responding to us. What's our market share look like? And we wanted to do these on a routine basis so that it got people comfortable with these, what we were looking at, and so that they could ask, so that they could ask hard questions. Now, in the beginning, Chad, I had to do a lot more prompting about hard questions than once we had established that culture. That was acceptable. Yeah. Once, once people knew I didn't lop anybody's head off for asking those questions, I you had to make sure it didn't turn into anarchy. But, but once people get comfortable with asking those questions and seeing that I might not like the question, I might demonstrate I don't like the question. I'm human too. I might go, oh, and then answer it to the yeah. best of my ability. I would, my philosophy was, I will answer your question so long as it doesn't violate insider trading rules or something of that nature. Okay. About the same time we talked, so somewhere during that year, I had also had a discussion with the director of innovation at Chick-fil-A. And he brought up that one of the problems they had that they realized as they were, tr they created, had created an innovation center, a large facility to mm. focus on innovation. And they had discovered in that process that a lot of their employees were fearful of actually suggesting ideas and trying new things. And the way they addressed this was the senior leaders of the organization started having town halls sharing their pre previous mistakes. 
because there was this culture like this is not a place where we make mistakes. Mm-hmm. So the senior leaders got together and said, hey, let me tell you about this huge mistake I made and how we recover from that, et cetera, et cetera. How did you deal with this people are afraid of me sort of thing and work this into the culture to change that around? Maybe they still are afraid. I don't think so. I think that it just, I met with anyone who wanted to meet with me one-on-one. And mm-hmm. I started scheduling one-on-ones with people I didn't know very well. Let's go have, I have lunch every day. Look at me, I never miss a meal, right? Uh, look, I have lunch every day. So let's have lunch today. And I, if I didn't get an invitation, I would invite someone. One of the practices that we started in Japan, I had nothing to do with this, by the way. I was part of the, I was a beneficiary, was that there was a, in the factory, there was a breakfast area, like a breakfast and luncheon area. And many of the leaders would meet before work started before their day started to have breakfast. And I was, I don't know how old I was, 29, 29 years old, something like that was, it was just a couple of years ago. I was 29 or 30 years old. And the leader said, Ken, why aren't you coming to this? I said, am I invited? And they said, it's an open area. Anybody that wants to show up for breakfast, show up for breakfast. So a lot of us started going for breakfast and they would have, subject to the same kind of rule I alluded to before, where you can't be an insider, but they would discuss the topics that were on their minds at breakfast and not hide anything and just look for our input and our feedback. And I just thought it just became a very natural thing Chad, to, to start incorporating people in these very common, th- commonly done things. A lot of people after hours, we're going to go bowling. That works for some people. And I get it. Let's do it. If it works, let's do it. If it doesn't, and like I said, you eat breakfast and lunch anyway, take advantage of the time that's already there. Make yourself available to them and you'll learn what you need to do. They'll learn about you because let's face it, there is a a generational gap between where I am now and where the new, where new engineers coming out of school are. I need to figure that out. Good insights, right? The breakfast meetings, the stand-up meeting in a scrum environment. I love the scrum idea. We started doing that. I mentioned Belgium earlier. We would have these staff meetings where I, we called them stand-up meetings early on. This was ni- this was probably learnings from my first Japan assignment, but 95, 96, 97, 98 when I was in in Belgium. And we would have staff meetings where no one would sit. And it's not that I want you to be uncomfortable. It's that Let's get in here, decide what we need to do, and get out of here. <laughs> we have work to do. And and that worked pretty well, along with we'd grab a stiff cup of coffee before we walked in there, and then it was great. But anyway, sorry, where, where were we? And then I- This is great. Go, we, we could go, oh my gosh, something I've- I can't, I, I would never write a book because I can't crystallize my thoughts down to anything short enough that people would want to read it. But I, let's not forget that there's a vision aspect of this too. I think hmm. that, who, who said this to me? Mark Randall, who some of your listeners might remember us from Adobe, and he yep. started the Kick box, kickbox yep. guy. Randall told me something once, and I, again, I was, as, a, as the director of innovation at Caterpillar, I could talk to just about anybody I wanted. And I invited myself out to Mark's office, and Mark, for some reason, said, sure, come on out. Mark said something to me I will never forget. He said, you can't create the energy of the storm, but you can, you can't create the energy of the storm, but you can help it coalesce. 
And I thought that was really interesting, a really interesting comment. He said, you, you want innovation in your company to coalesce like a, people are hungry. You've hired good people. They're hungry to make a difference. And uh, I'm sorry, I'm staring off into space here because I'm trying to remember the conversation because it might have been more than a minute ago, too. <laughs> you can't, they're hungry. They want to make a difference. It's a storm. There's tremendous energy in the storm. So what you want to do is set up lightning rods around which that storm will coalesce. And I hope I'm quoting you right, Mark. He'll probably, what? I said, what? But what he meant by that was you have an overall vision that is around these lightning rods. You know, what I wanted, I wanted in my, when I was director of excavation division at CAT, I wanted my teams to coalesce around ideas that would improve the performance, the reliability, durability, the owning and the owning and operating cost, the the emissions levels, the green aspects of the machine, and the safety. Those five things. And I said, I'm running a business here, so I've used this analogy before too. I don't. If you're going to go innovate on the next great diaper because you've got children, you have toddlers. Awesome. Do that on your time. I wanted to coalesce innovation on my team around what my customers found most important. Right. And so if you're if you have an idea, I don't care how harebrained it is, and it impacts one of those five areas, let's go. You I have got your back. And then you have to demonstrate over time that you really do have their back. You know, this is a crazy idea. I want the radiator and oil cooler alert to be on a hinge and swing out so that we can clean it easily. That was a harebrained idea that's on just about every machine there is today. How many years ago that was? 15 years ago. It came out of a forestry idea. I need to be able to clean this machine for performance reasons and all kinds of other reasons. And the ease of cleaning was a, a big idea. And it's changed dramatically since then. There are better ideas since then. But that was a nutty idea. Putting GPS on every machine was insane. Insane in what year would it have been? 19, way back in 1998, we had the first linked machines, construction machines. That's a long time ago. And that was insane. I remember team, a team member just, you're just, this is nuts. This is just a cost. This is nuts. And we did, <laughs> you're, maybe that was part of the fear factor. Your input is received, we're doing, therefore we're doing it anyway. Uh, and I understand your concerns, we're going to do it anyway. That's th and it was, a, it was not a small amount of money then, it was a thousand bucks on a machine back in that time frame. Not cheap. Customers are going to pay for it? Nope. And now it's standard place. But what an important idea in 1998. Yep. So anyway, that's how I looked at it. So when we think about portfolio management, so we've talked about, about, I want about 90% of the innovations to take place in my core business, something around 90% of that activity. Right. I'm not necessarily going to mandate it, but if the business is performing poorly, then I'm going to start looking at where you're innovating. Are you trying to grow the business? Do you have projects that are in that adjacent space? Is about or 8% of your projects work in that adjacent space? And then I also want to make sure you're doing something 
radical, that's way out there. And I want 2% of your activity in that space, 5%, something like that. And I'm if I'm the CEO of a company and your business is underperforming, I'm going to check out your how you have curated the projects, you know, that you're working on to serve your customers. And I'm going to, if 99% of it is core, I might be finding a new leader of the business. I, I, that that's just the way it's gonna that's just the way it's gonna work then the other part of that curation is it's a matrix right there's core trans there's core adjacent transformational i still can't believe it's a cat acronym but and then the other aspect of that is around these innovate this portfolio of innovations needs to be around these top critical customer requirements mm-hmm. and i always name the same ones it's performance reliability owning and operating cost safety and environment and there are more than that but i wanted to see them around i wanted to see a portfolio that was organized around cat and around those five critical customer requirements. And a lot of businesses have those same critical requirements. I'm not giving away the farm at all. That's just the way the industrial businesses tend to work. Good wisdom. I'm rambling, and that's no, you're not at all. Nobody this has is... ever kept me to 30 minutes, Chad, and you know that. <laughs> yeah, I figured we'd be going over. We are, and there's nothing wrong with that. I will say to listeners, we do have a private community where as soon as we get done with this recording... We're going to spend a little time talking with Ken further about such things. And if you're interested in being part of that community, just go to productmasterynow.com slash community, and you can find out more about that as well. Ken, I know we could keep talking. We'll save that for the private community a little bit. You know I like innovation quotes, and I asked you to bring one to share as well. Tell us what that is and what it means to you. It's an Edison quote, and and I have it in front of me here just to make sure that I don't always recite it perfectly, so I want to make sure I did. He said, anything that won't sell, I don't want to invent. Its sale is proof of utility, and utility is success. And for me, it is so meaningful because although he probably never used the word innovation in his life, to me, this quote goes gets to the difference between invention and innovation. And, and it gets to the entrepreneurial com- component that moves an invention to an innovation. For me, again, it's about serving customers. And as I wrote to, I think I wrote to you, the U.S. Patent Office can grant a patent, and I think they are super important. And I don't want anybody to think that I don't think patents are important. That's not my point here. But ultimately, it's your customer with their wallet that will decide whether your invention is, reaches the level of what I think of as innovation. That is, it is something that I'm going to buy. It's profitable for me as a customer and it's profitable for you as the product provider. And when it gets to, when the invention gets to that, satisfies that kind of entrepreneurial requirement, then it's truly innovative. And that's why that's important. Yeah. You have, they have, they vote with their wallet. Now, the patent portfolio, oh my gosh, is that incredibly important? You need to be able to prevent it, to manage it. You need to be able to manage that portfolio like any other asset that your business has. Patents, trade secrets, copyrights, extremely important. They have tangible value and you need to be turning that value like any other. There ought to be a return. There ought to be an ROI or an ROA on the on on your IP portfolio as well. We can talk about that another time. But I've got somebody to tell you, to introduce you to who's a whole lot smarter in that space than I am. I'd be glad to talk to him. That's a good quote. I love it. I, to me, if you, and if you look at my LinkedIn profile, you'll see I'm always, it's one of my favorite things to do is put quotes out there that I think impact 
innovators and product developers, product managers. I'm always trying to find something. And I don't have something out there every day, but I certainly have something out there every week because I'm always studying someone in history. This week, it's this week my study was second president of the United States, John Adams. What did he say about what we're doing? That matters, and it turns out he was a. It turns out he was a fairly brilliant and incredibly insightful person that we don't talk about very much. But again, what's the adage? If you don't know history, you're bound to repeat it. So I spend a good deal of time with with historical figures, just trying to understand why they were successful and how, although times change, how what they thought and did impacts the way we behave today. I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. Keep sharpening the saw. There's always more to learn. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So you mentioned LinkedIn. That sounds like a good place for people to find out more about you. And I'll put that link in the show notes as well. Find you on LinkedIn. What else do you want us to know about it? I thought you might want to just give us a little bit of insights of what you're doing with the University of Iowa, their Institute for Vision Research. I'm always, I, I wish I could, I was more involved with them, but the uh, Dr. Ed Stones co-founded a group called the Institute for Vision Research at the University of Iowa about Oh my gosh, I'm not going to say how long ago. It was de- it's been decades in the making, but what what the IVR is doing is democratizing treatment of inherited or heritable diseases of the eye and there's some horrible ones that right now they have an initiative to fund finding a cure for Usher syndrome, which is a degenerative disease of the eye. And one of the things I'm fascinated by, if you find their page, look at their culture. And a lot of what we're talking about today and from culture can be found in, it's just a bulleted list, talks about our culture. It actually references the golden rule in there and can do unto others thing. It's a really great place. Dr. Stone wrote that. And it's just, it's like a, it's literally, it's like a bulleted list of how to behave in Hmm. business. And when I say democratize, they are, they're not funded by any businesses, pharmaceuticals. Their work is around discovering the sequences in our DNA that cause these diseases. So they're looking for root cause, first and foremost, and doing that in a cost-effective manner. And then they are applying exponential technologies to solve those problems, whether it's, whether it's stem cell work or microsurgery or whatever the solution turns out to be and in this and people know me know that my family is affected by one of these diseases mine is one of the 106 genes that has been discovered so the one that's in my family so obviously there's a very a very personal reason for doing it but i think from a from in terms of lessons for innovators how they work and the culture it's worth the it's worth just looking in that page of culture how they do things if you do nothing else. So fantastic. That's really cool. And the link to the Institute for Vision Research will also be in the show notes. That's at the University of Iowa. Ken, anything else you want to leave us with? I know you're always working on something and we people can find out more about you on LinkedIn. I just again I just wanna I wanted to say thank you to you again and congratulations on how far you've brought this platform and it's amazing how far things have come in the more than a minute since we did this the first time. <laughs> so congratulations to you. I think uh, I remember I remember public relations saying, who is this guy? 
<laughs> do we, do Why we do want I want to do, do this? this? Do we want to do this? And uh, I said, yeah, we, we do. We want to do this. So let's, and, and I'm so glad we did. And I'm so glad that, that, that you've brought it so far. Like I said, people are always more worried about my next job than I am. <laughs> so I'm sure that, I'm sure that something is, is going to happen. And who knows what that's going to be. One of my, I've been retired now from Caterpillar, whatever retired means for seven years. And I think I said to you before we started, is that one of my young colleagues says all that means to him is that I'm taking time to do the things that, to do only those things that I'm truly passionate about. So thanks again. That's a wonderful way to live life in general, and especially putting that good, all those years of experience to good use and helping others. Ken, really appreciate the insights. Thanks for spending time with us. And we'll talk to the community here in just a moment, too. And for our listeners, please remember we do prepare that one-page action guide for you and a full written, full written notes of our discussion. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 443. Everyone, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.